Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Yeah. Hey, I am so happy to be with you tonight. It's Carol Jurgensen Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach. And I was away last week. I was on vacation taking a well-deserved cruise. And I got to tell you, one of the nicest things about cruises is that you really untether from all the technology. Unless you want to pay an arm and a leg and spend four or $500 for Internet, which I did not, and I said I'm not going to. I'm not that important. All my colleagues and my clients know that I'm on vacation or they're getting an out-of-office reply, and I certainly directed them to the right people if they had some emergencies. But other than that, you know what I did? I worked on my book. You all know I'm writing a workbook on how sex addicts can develop empathy in the coupleship. And so I have to tell you, I think I'm going to be done by this week. And my goal was to have it done by the end of September. So I am super stoked about that. Now, that doesn't mean it's done, done. That means it's ready to go to the publisher probably be ripped apart and um, put together again. But, hey, I'm okay with that. I need all the guidance I can handle. And, you know, that's what I want you to realize. If you're an addict, you can't do this thing on your own. You don't have what it takes to white knuckle and cold turkey this disease. I'm telling you, Patrick Carnes told me a long time ago, that you need a committee, you need a host of recovery tools, you need a group of people to support you, and if you think you're strong enough to do it by yourself, you're not. This is not like quitting smoking or losing weight. 
this is a relational sexual addiction. It's a relational addiction that requires that you find the right support in your life. Now, I recently had several emails from a man in another country who said, I am so embarrassed because I'm a compulsive masturbator and I don't know what to do about it because I don't even want to talk about it. I don't want to go to a group and share that information. It's way too personal. It's way too private, but I can't stop and I don't know what in the heck to do. And I said to him, you know what? You can't do it on your own. You've got to be able to reach out to people who will understand and Each and every addiction that falls under the heading of sexual addiction is different, but it's the same. I had a doctor in my office today, a really nice doctor in his late 30s. And he says, you know, when I first started going to 12-step meetings, I said to myself, whoa, I am not these guys. I don't expose myself, I don't peep in windows, I don't molest children, I don't this, I don't that. And it goes, by the end of the meeting, I realized we're all alike. We have compulsion. They may not be alike, but the compulsion itself is very similar, and it requires that you create recovery tools to deal with a compulsion, and they're all alike. So for the, the client that I had today who was a doc, who thought he was way different than everybody else, he quickly learned everybody else. And, you know, here's what I really admired about him. In all of my group experience, and I have run over 3,000 groups in my lifetime. It was 2,000, and that was just women's groups. But boy, I've been doing eight years of sexual addiction groups and partner groups and self-esteem groups and teen groups. And what I know to be true is that when you come to a group, your initial experience is I am way different and everybody else, nobody is as sick as I am or has as many difficulties as I do or has this problem. And this group isn't going to be able to help me. The other response is the opposite of that. It's on the other side of the continuum. And it goes like this. Whoa, everybody here is way sicker than I am. I don't have any problems compared to the rest of these guys or women or whatever. I don't fit in. This is not my group. I am not as crazy slash sick slash disturbed as everybody else here in the group. And then one of the reasons we tell you go to at least six groups before you make a decision about what you think about 12-step groups or therapy groups or support groups, what we know is if you go to six groups, you're going to quickly realize that you all do share a lot of similarities. There is a lot of compatibility there. 
And it is in that ability to relate to each other whereby you help each other. You know, Patrick Carnes, when he was on our show, he said, suffering is part of the disease, and it is the source of what makes you stronger. And when you couple that with when you start transforming your life, when you accept the fact that you're powerless over this disorder, this compulsion, this illness, when you start working on your resentments, your fears, your anxiety, your sadness, when you put it together and look at your own character defects and decide that you need to make an amend to all the people you've hurt, when you do that 12-step and you give back, it doesn't require that you make the 12 step. I mean, everybody has to go through those steps. I shouldn't say everybody. There may be other recovery groups that you're a part of that are equally as important. Every man's battle, every woman's battle, um, Recovery Nation, an online group, Smart Recovery, Sexaholics Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous. I mean, you get the drift. What I'm really saying is when you get the support of other people that have the same issues and are in different places in their recovery, it is powerful, not only because you receive the things you need, but also because you give to others in a way that really catapults your own recovery. And Patrick Karn said, hey, when you're doing that 12-step work, when you put together the cycle of suffering, transformation, plus giving back, you have created a lifestyle for yourself that improves your self-esteem and where you can contribute to the world. So that's my hope for you. If you're an addict, I want you to know that you can definitely Become a better person because of your addiction. In some ways, it's a curse, but it's a gift. Just as everything else that we do in our life. Now, tonight, I have a renowned author, Deborah Kaplan, who is, um, oh, she's a mentor. She supervises certified sexual addiction therapists. She runs part of the ICAP program. I mean, she teaches. She has written this book, and you may have heard of it, For Love and Money, Exploring Sexual and Financial Betrayal in Relationships. And she has just released the audiobook. So not only can you read it, but if you're one of these people like I am, I'm super busy. I can only read so much, but I can listen in the car. I can listen when I work out. I can listen when I mow the lawn. I can listen when I vote. We're really excited that she has turned this provocative literary lens on the world of sex, money, and relational power. And she has created this audio book so that you can understand how important it is to 
to deal with the sexual and financial betrayal in your relationship. And so I asked her to come on the show because not only is she an expert in the field, a renowned author, but she also is probably the number one expert on how sexual addiction and financial issues affect you as a sex addict and affect the relationship, the coupleship that you're in. And how oftentimes that sex and money affect relational power and how do you how do you make sense of that and what do you do to restore your life so that there's meaning as opposed to compulsion. So at her and I said, Hey, I want you on the show so we can talk about this book and so people will listen to it because this is one of the greatest teachers I've ever met in the field of sexual addiction. So Deborah Kaplan, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk with you again. Yes, well, I am too. You have been on before, and, you know, for over a decade, you have been working with problems that relate to sexual addiction, money, and relationships, and I'm so happy that this has become an audio book so that people will be able to hear the information that you have because You know, we know as certified sexual addiction therapists that when we look at our issues with money and sex and relationships, there are lots of ways that we can improve our life and decrease compulsivity in all sorts of areas. So so tell me a little bit about what made you decide to write this book and how has it affected your clients? Many years ago, before I was a therapist, I was a commodity option trader on Wall Street. And I worked in commodities and I worked in other financial instruments. And my time on Wall Street and on the exchange floors really showed me and gave me a bird's eye view as to how power and money and sex play out. March forward many years later, uh, after I had been in practice for quite some time and working with sex addiction issues, it became very clear to me that couples would come in and individuals would come in. And while they were talking about their sexual infidelity or their displeasure about sexual satisfaction in their love life, many of the issues that were not being addressed but that were very present in the therapy and in the marriage or the relationship was money or financial issues. And the power struggles that the coupleship was having around sex oftentimes was really being driven by money. And it became very clear to me that much had been written about sex and much had been written about money, but no one really brought the two together. And for those reasons and for many others, I decided this had to be a book. And since the time that that book was published in 2013, many people have come up to me uh, in my practice and presenting out and about at conferences and begged for this to be in a audio version because so many individuals prefer to hear information versus to read it 
and assimilate and internalize it. So that is what, how the book itself came about. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And so clearly it was your expertise um, on Wall Street and then your sex addiction training that allowed you to, to assess that clients who had sex addiction also had issues with money and relational power. So tell me a little bit, explain to our audience, you know, how do you address the complexities of sex, money, and power in your clinical work with couples? How does that work? That's a great question, Carol, and it is a very complex one. And so for the purpose of uh, the listeners and for clients who come into therapy, I try to make this as uh, simple as possible, although it's not easy. Uh, If there is a client who comes in and he's struggling with sexual compulsivity the first thing that I want to do, as long, along with other therapists who work with clients, get a full history. And I'm listening for family of origin, childhood themes. I'm listening for attachment issues in one's life. But when I really delve into the history of how the sexual compulsivity took off or how it be manifested, What I begin to hear are organizing themes around lack of control, not having enough control, feeling powerless, and I don't mean in the 12-step sense. And so the weaving in of the power and control, you know, growing up, all we have available to us is an an ability to affect change and to have a sense of uh, control or autonomy is food or masturbation. And as we get a little older, objects of desire, obsessional thinking, money is a phenomenal way to feel or be close to power. Having money, having a, a, a career or a job about which we are defined and by which we get to feel better about ourselves And so when you thread these two together, feeling powerful in one sense of the word in what I do as a pursuit or a career, or feeling more powerful if I'm engaging in transactional sex, which is sex for money, or I'm getting something or giving something in exchange for sex, this is a way to level a playing field for a psychological wound that may need healing. I hope that okay, makes so sense. When you say, absolutely. But when you say psychological wound, give us some examples of sex addicts and psychological wounds. We all recognize that sexual behavior is healthy. It's natural. It is something that we all engage in, whether it be in a solitary pursuit or with another or others. And it is necessary to be, we are wired as sexual beings. I, as a, a human being, may have a hard time for a client who comes in and I say to him or her, 
how did you, how were you loved? Who loved you? And in what ways were you loved growing up? And so the wound to the developing self not mattering or not feeling comfortable in one's own skin, not feeling uh, with a strong sense of self-esteem, not feeling important or good enough, I certainly can heal or perceive to heal that wound by becoming someone else or doing something in order to put a facade or a mask and cover up that true vulnerability, that unmet need by becoming someone else or doing something else and hiding behind that fake foot, that, that mask, that inauthentic false self. Well, you know, I remember that is in your training. And clearly, as therapists, oftentimes we enact what the client enacts because, you know, the bottom line is we've all had our traumas. We've all had our family of origin issues. We're not as different as one might think. And so I remember you having us do our trauma egg so that we could identify the kinds of information, the kind of messages we received about money and about power and about control. And it was startling that very few of us got good information, got healthy information from our family of origin about money. I mean, we already started out at a deficit. Many of us, at least in our uh, culture, many of us don't have pertinent, important information and conversations with caregivers and significant family members about healthy sexuality and healthy finances. And while it seems so natural and almost expected that we would, it it almost feels incongruous, how could we not? And yet these are the two areas that our society places tremendous value on, sexual competency and financial success. And yet we come into, much like you just said, we really come into adulthood oftentimes ill-prepared to even know what that means or to even be able to identify within us how we go about feeling and developing a healthy relationship with either of the two. And certainly if we're feeling undervalued, unappreciated, and we bring that belief and wound with us through childhood into adult life, well, what two wonderful ways to manifest a sense of empowerment, false as it may be. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, I want to ask you, because obviously most everybody that's listening to the show knows how uncomfortable it is to talk about sexuality. Our parents didn't do that with us, and sex addicts, uh, partners probably did not get good, healthy information about sex. But why do you think that money has also been an issue that wasn't clearly discussed in families or, you know, had such a negative um, attachment to it? Mm -hmm. 
I think there are many reasons and there's no one pertinent uh, answer to that very valid question. Generationally speaking, one generation's relationship to money and how money really showed up, how work showed up, is going to be different than another. You speak to somebody who lived through the Great Depression and how those economic times influenced their belief about money and work and trusting that they will have enough. Bring um, the next generation in and perhaps that next generation had plenty because of a boom or bust cycle in our economic uh, system. How we've all learned to deal with or basically not deal with money may go back to intergenerational belief systems about what money means. And in this country, we have a very strong working belief that if we work hard enough, we will succeed. So the operative word here is what is deemed successful? And success and money are so inexplicably tied in that we, ha- we are speaking about shame because if we don't feel successful or a parent or caregiver or the generation before us struggled and therefore didn't want to talk about what that struggle felt like, a sense of failure or a lack of control in their life around money or feeling confident to support a family, that takes hold as a shame message. And just not discussing the topic of earning money or what does financial success look like just not discussing that topic alone breeds a a culture of shame because if we're not talking about something, there must be a good reason. And at times children ask questions but don't get the answers because their message in the family might be, we don't talk about money. Carol, you and I as therapists know that we can talk about sex all day long, but asking clients about money is akin to asking them something so personal, yet we can talk about masturbation and sex, but we don't have that same luxury and uh, relationship with clients because they are so uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Good point. So now, so it's really about creating a normalcy and normalizing the discomfort that someone may have with money and make room and space to talk about it. And that's what you and I as therapists do. And what we know is that whatever you do in the office can oftentimes be um, developed or, or modeled outside of the office. And so you and I both spend time with our clients talking about what messages did you get about money and how might you have distorted your own sense of self-esteem based on the money you made or the money you didn't. I mean, truly, Mm -hmm. your book, For Love and Money, Exploring Sexual and Financial Betrayal in Relationships, is one of the first books that talked about the issues related to sex, money, and power long before Me Too and the Time's Up movement. 
has the larger conversation about sexual power changed in society in terms of your clinical work? Oh, it has. Absolutely it has. Yeah, back, back when uh, For Love and Money came out, there was no Time's Up or Me Too. And nobody was really aware of what had yet to be uh, broken in the headlines that the greater conversation is the relational struggle, the power struggle between sex and money, that sex becomes, now prostitution has been around for centuries, for millennium. And so what I'm not referring to is prostitution here. That has been a known entity where um, what we're talking about is two people are engaging in that behavior with the awareness and knowledge and consent. But when we're talking about exploitive control of an individual by way of another who holds power and control and sway and influence over someone who sexually is taken advantage of and exploited, now the ante is broken um, and really amped when we talk about how that exploitation plays out. Two people who choose to have sex together or to be sexual do so with the understanding that I'm getting something from this and you're getting something from this. But when that sexual behavior is delivered or demanded, let me say, by way of an exploitive um, setup, now this isn't so consensual anymore. And the exploitation that we began to see that broke in the latter part of 2017, right around now, last year, we began to see how that power, that sexual and financial control over a vulnerable individual could really play out under uh, eyes wide open. And um, this does happen. It broke conversations in therapy in a way that I had never heard before. Couples who would come in, individuals who would come in and talk about how they did not feel comfortable saying no in their marriage or their relationship to something sexual because they feel either it's the least they could do if they weren't earning enough. It's as if it became the calling card and the currency in order to uh, have access to their own intimacy. Yeah, that is such a good point. I was getting ready to say, you know, for our listening audience, they obviously – may not be celebrities. They may not have been in a work situation where they were exploited like so many celebrities have been in the past. But clearly what I hear you saying is that in a coupleship, if you don't feel like you're participating or contributing enough, you may barter sex and your own sexuality to regain a little more power, which of course, if that's what you're doing, you really on some level know that you're not worthy because sex should never be a bartering tool. It should be something that comes naturally that you want to participate in and it should not be a currency, so to speak. Correct. 
but I do want to differentiate that between the notion and the, and the uh, concept of relational currency, which is different than what you and I are talking about, that anytime I feel I have to pay into or buy love, appreciation, um, access, or even validation or worth, now we're using sex in a very dysfunctional and abusive, hurtful way, or even money, because this is not a mutual agreed-upon understanding between two people who bring to the marriage or the relationship different strengths to help complete what this one relationship offers to people. That speaks more to the relational currency, which means what each individual values and brings to a relationship, or the acts and statements used to express love and affection between two people. So I may value uh, being at work in the office while my partner values being um, uh, more attuned to the children or building a career in the home versus outside the home. These are showing up for the other person or making dinner, what I bring to the table literally and figuratively, acts of kindness, acts of wonder, uh, of affection. And this is currency because it's the strength that we bring into the relationship. Oh, yeah, very, very good point. And so this must be really um reaffirming to you that here you wrote this book in 2013 and it is so timely in 2018. I mean, it's like you were ahead of your time in terms of the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. What do you think Thank you. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I'm, I'm very, I feel very um, validated uh, because when I wrote the book, while it was received very well, it is really a niche book. There weren't too many people out there that were reading the book unless they had issues around sexual infidelity or financial problems. And again, because we don't in our society talk about money, not many people would reach out for help regarding that. And since 2013, uh, since the audio book and since the uh, Kindle version and the print version, I began to see a great need for a, a depth and breadth exploration into sex, money, and power in ways that were deeper and broader than sexual addiction. And so I am currently in the process of writing the next book that will speak to how power and control show up in relationships and the ways in which sex and money have become uh, abusive or exploitive, and then how couples can work to successfully level the playing field. So I've been in incredibly honored to know that my work has meant so much to so many people and has touched a number of people's lives for the positive, and that they're able to get help and skills and tools to introduce balance into their own life. Yeah, I I bet. And, you know, clearly when we're doing our training as certified sexual addiction therapists, looking at money is 
is part of the process of looking at a sexual addiction. We look for compulsivity. We look for self-esteem flaws. We look for all sorts of ways that we might exploit or be exploited where money, power, and sex is concerned. So now I want to ask you, so many people um, are not really sure how power plays out. And you've just been talking about that. Now, in the book, you write about eroticized rage and monetized rage. So explain those two mm-hmm. concepts and how you see them as pertinent to the coupleship, the relationship, and the sex addict. Eroticized rage. Let me take that first um and then we can move to monetize rage. Erotic, eroticized rage is the fusing of sex, shame, and anger. I may, as a, by way of an example, I may grow up, um, feel disempowered or falsely uh, oppressed and shamed by any number of people in my life and let's presume that I grow up and I become an adult and I'm able somehow to usurp a sense of power when I'm sexual. And I might channel, although subliminally, not consciously, I might channel that anger toward those who have suppressed me or towards those who have shamed me or how I felt shamed by them in the partners or in the people with whom I have sex today. It is an unconscious righting of the wrong of leveling that disempowered to now all powerful and the ways in which I'm expressing or exploiting is through sex is with shame and anger. The same if by using the same expression for monetized rage, I am now channeling a sense of powerlessness financially by fusing the use of money with sex and shame. So now when I bring the two... One more time, because that is... Those are two tough concepts. One more time. Eroticized rage. Yeah. Eroticized rage is the fusing of sex, shame, and anger. And monetized rage is the fusing of money, anger, and shame. Got it. Okay. So now, how does that play out? in a couple trip or, or individually. Mm-hmm. So I might use money to express rage or dominate over another person, certainly when this dynamic is in an intimate relationship. I may have a partner who does not have the control of finances. And I see this, unfortunately, very often in heterosexual couples where the wife really feels inadequate to ask about money. Many older women 
have been socialized to not ask about money and to not think that they should deal with it, that they'll let their partners do so. What happens is not knowing about money and feeling unable to understand or incompetent to understand only fuels the imbalance or the potential for control with or the potential to control with money and between partners. So I, as a partner, may want to control my intimate other by access or or, uh, thwarting access to money or controlling someone by way of what I spend, uh, controlling another person by allowing them to go into debt or, in many ways, cutting a partner off from access to money. Now, this sounds awfully abusive. And while on the surface between in domestic violence or other abusive relationships, that might be the case, but two people may actually get into a power struggle and neither would say that their struggle is abusive. How many partners that we hear say, well, you know, um, he makes the money or she makes the money. I don't feel as if I bring enough to this relationship. And so sexually, I'm going to withhold. Or sexually, I'm, I'm going to um, control over how much sex we have or how little sex we have because there's no other way to gain a sense of empowerment or the sex becomes punitive or shaming. And it plays out very covertly and in ways that pull on what each may know about the other, their childhood wounds, the issues that are brought into the relationship. And I know this is very complex as we talk about it. Well, it really is, but I'm sure our listening audience is getting a feeling for how both of those concepts can play out within themselves and in the relationship. So, obviously, you've explained these terms and the power dynamic that plays out between them. In many relationships, it's likely that there are power differences. How can a couple advance? balance that power differential? What can they do? There will always be a power differential. Of That is never in question. It's how that power differential gets uh, managed and addressed that becomes the issue. And it isn't always a negative. There may be a difference between education levels or what two people bring financially. One may come in debt to the relationship, one may have no debt, and the other chooses to help out. So the fact that there is power differentials, age, education, access, social access, is not a problem. What two people can do is the first and foremost is to communicate, begin to identify for themselves where each person may be feeling inadequate or incompetent, ashamed, afraid, 
apprehensive, and I'm using these words intentionally because giving voice to what one feels internally and externalizing this to communicate with a partner brings the issues right into the forefront. And so we're dealing with them directly and overtly. That automatically shifts what's happening in a couple because the minute we are naming it, we can, when you name it, you can tame it. And therefore the power struggles that are being, that are driving the dynamic become exposed and workable. That's the first thing couples can do. And so then what kinds of questions or dynamics can couples ask themselves to get a better sense of their own power and equity and how it plays out in the relationship? Yes. The first uh, question each individual really would benefit from asking is what do I bring to this relationship? What do I bring and what do I value in this relationship? If what I'm valuing about this relationship is um, the love and support is what I value my partner making, uh, earning the, the money so that we can have a family and I stay home with the children or I pursue my own career that won't make money but that I feel creatively fulfilled. Am I asking for my needs? Do I know what I need? These are some of the most pertinent questions two people can ask about their own sense of self. Because it's very easy to turn to our partners and say, this is what you're doing, this is what I'm not getting, without saying, this is what I value. If I don't declare what it is I value, how can the other person help me, let alone how could I ask for help and get the help I need? So that's that's the first thing that two people can do, and that's a very healthy approach dealing with the shame in the relationship because in choosing to turn a blind eye and not talk about it does not help expose and address the needs and wants in a relationship. And therefore the power differentials, which are speaking to the shame that becomes a cloud between two people and intimacy. Okay. So I think I've got that, you know, Clearly, people can get your audio book or the written book for that matter um, in all sorts of ways. I want to say that I am interviewing Deborah Kaplan. She wrote the book for Love and Money, Exploring Sexual and Financial Betrayal in Relationships. It has now just come out in an audio book. And I highly recommend that if you have money issues, if you have power differences that create conflict, If you feel bad about your relationship with money, this is a book that you need to read to get a better understanding of what you can do to get healthier in terms of your own sense of self and your sense of money, power, and sex. So how can they get the audio book and how can they get your book? Both of those versions are available on Amazon and 
they can easily click and go to for love and money, Deborah Kaplan. They're easily accessible. They could download it on Kindle and they can download it on Audible if they already have an account. And or they could go to my website, www.debracaplancounseling.com and access and purchase the book there. Or they can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn and access the book's content and links to purchase there as well. And so I need to ask you, because obviously they can contact you at info at Deborah, D-E-B-R-A, Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N, counseling.com, or they can go to your website, www.debracaplancounseling.com. What else do you have on the horizon? I know you're always doing something. Well, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, um, I'm in the process of writing this next book, which will be a deeper dive into sex, money, and power. It will really take into consideration uh, a deeper exploration of personality and um, relationships and how power and control show up in the various ways that they do. It's a, it's a, a book that I'm very, very excited about, and this project has been in the works now for a bit. I suspect the book will be out next year, and I am thrilled that professionals such as yourself, Carol, are interested in talking about these topics and having an opportunity for someone like me to be on and to share with your listeners. Well, I so appreciate you because, again, we don't have many authors, many experts in this field that can help our clients work through these issues. And let's face it, a book, a YouTube, a webinar, and an audio book are the best ways to get the information and decide, do I need to do the deep dive with a therapist who also understands Yeah, and I will say that I also uh, facilitate workshops and intensives for individuals who want to come and do some intensive work because it's one thing to read and then work through some of the questions that I have or the exercises that I have in the book. It's another to explore with a therapist in a very real and intensive manner the issues that drive these behaviors. And sometimes in the matter of a day or a day and a half or two, I see tremendous shifts for clients who have come in really not aware how to connect these dots and how these dots even came to be significant struggles, areas of struggle. So that's another wonderful way to delve into these issues if someone's identifying with that. Well, Deborah Kaplan, thank you so much for sharing your information on this important subject. There just aren't enough therapists that have expertise in this. Again, I was talking with Deborah Kaplan, who wrote For Love and Money, Exploring Sexual and Financial Betrayal in Relationships. The audiobook is out, folks, so I highly recommend you get it. I'm not much for multitasking, but if I'm exercising or I'm mowing the lawn or I'm in the car, There's nothing better than getting educated while, you know, doing something mundane. So 
really appreciate that you got this audio book going, and I can't wait for that deeper dive into more on this subject. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Carol. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. And keep us posted. We want to know when it comes out so we can find out more about it. Thank you. I will so welcome doing that. All right. Have a great day. So that was Deborah Kaplan. And again, you can go to her website, which is www.debra.com. Or you can contact her by going to info at deborahkaplancounseling.com and get more information about her books, her workshops, her intensives, and all the things that she's doing to, to kind of right the wrong. And when I say right the wrong, I mean, you know, there is no doubt that sex and money are difficult subjects to talk about, and we want you to feel comfortable doing that within your relationship and within yourself. That's what it's all about. So I look forward to hearing your comments. You can always email me at carolthecoach.com. And I want you to go to Sex Help with Carol the Coach and send me information that you think would be helpful for the show. You know, we have over a half a million open downloads a week. So what I know to be true is there are plenty of you out there that are really doing a fantastic job of being able to get the word out and take in the information and learn more about sexual addiction. And so there is no doubt in my mind that if you are looking for more information, this is the place to come. Every Monday night at 9 o'clock, Eastern Standard Time for more sex help with Carol the Coach. Hey, take a look at some of my new YouTube videos. I've got over 100 for addicts and partners. They're anywhere from six, seven, or eight minutes long to help you navigate through sexual addiction, partner betrayal, and restoring the relationship. That's what it's all about. And we've got a new show. It's on Thursday afternoons at 2 o'clock. It is sponsored by APSAS. That's Partner Sensitive Training for Therapists and Coaches. And that show is called Betrayal Recovery Radio. And I, of course, am your host, uh, Carol the Coach. So take a listen to that. You can get the uh, subscription through iTunes. And you can get the subscription So don't hesitate to get more information. If you're, if you're a partner listening to the show, I want you to know that you can make this happen. Coach, and as I say at the end of every show, there will always be one of you, only one of you at all times. So I fearlessly you have the courage to be yourself. And that means that you have to be authentic, transparent, and honest. 
by being who you really are, and that's what it's all about. And, you know, your insecurities are welcome here. So you're listening to Sex Help with Kira the Coach, and we will see you next week. Talk to you soon.